Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey, dare to wonder. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Welcome to your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, Season 2, Episode 92, coming at you from Los Angeles. I am Phil Lernis, and coming at us from Birmingham, Michigan, back from his paranormal adventures, it's the Motor City-adjacent Madman TV's Dean Haglund. Dean, how was MI Paracon? Well, the excitement couldn't be contained in just one day. For those of you who were on my Twitter and my uh, Facebook page, you saw the live stream of the first ever Ouija-Zilla. They apparently cemented the evil spirit within the board. And then to make sure it was done properly, uh, it was handed to me, a board full of evil spirits. And sure enough, I came home and nothing worked right. So I don't know. I don't know if they did a good job. Did anything work right before? Uh, that is a good question, actually. Uh, no, no, I guess not. So, so it just continues. So was this your first in-person convention of any kind since the advent of the pandemic? Uh, yeah, it's been two years since I hit the stage and did a hellacious renovation improv. No, you had, uh, you had never done a hellacious innovation improv before. It hadn't been no. two years since you did that. I'm worried no. that you're starting to sound a little bit like you did up on the rooftop several weeks ago. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that uh, the improv, you know, there's certain... Uh, you hadn't uh, been trotting the boards and doing any improv show in exact. virtually two years. Right. So it was intense. It was laugh-filled, holy laugh-filled for me as well. And uh, I filmed it, and it's available on Flash Drive. And uh, we'll put a link here and on my Facebook page. 
and uh in we'll put a where... link here what does that mean we'll put a link here in this audio we will <laughs> embed a link in the audio for those of you who have the g5 chill pack hollywood hour chip implanted in your brain uh, you already bought a show it, no it, i mean here in the chill pack hollywood website sure yeah we can do that that can be a thing that'll come up at the next it meeting so was this uh, was the convention well attended? I'm fascinated. I mean, it's a convention about uh, the spooky things that go bump in the night. I don't know if it's about that, but uh, but it lends itself to the spooky. And yes. uh, so, what was the experience like though? Post pandemic, everybody masked. Everybody masked. Uh, I'm going to say about fifty, maybe forty percent masked, but lots of social distancing. Everybody at the vendor tables were standing. You know, you had a table between you and the people. So most of the attendees were masked. Many of the uh, vendors and celebrities weren't masked because knowingly they were getting their photo taken again and again. They uh, they chose uh, to sort of just do the distancing and then, uh, you know, side by side posing. But uh, lots of um, I'm less interested in the details and more interested in the atmosphere. That's the point no. that I'm getting at. Uh, well attended, this thing? Well attended. Yet 900 people from 38 states uh, arrived from all over. And, uh, of course, normally Canada is about 50% of the audience there, and uh, they couldn't make it. So so at 900 people, that's, uh, that's still well attended for so, that convention. So Canada couldn't make it? Did they send their regrets via Telegram? Well, yeah, it's actually, it's Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan which is right across uh, a narrow uh, series of locks uh, across from Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. So basically you could just stand at the national park there and wave over to the Canadians. So I'm, I guess you're saying that they weren't able to attend because of COVID restrictions. Well, yeah, the border's still closed, right. uh, except for essential travel. And, so, and let's, so let's theoretically be a ghost con is not considered essential. Let's be honest, uh, borders are closed for Americans in increasingly uh, an increasing number of countries, I right? The, We're planning on Europe, and that just fizzled in front of our faces. Yeah, no, you can plan on Europe. Europe will be there. I have every reason to believe, but just you won't be in Europe. That's the difference. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yes. Um, yeah, so yeah. 900 That's people from 38 states, which uh, begs the question, how many from the other 12? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like That's, a math problem that you were giving me. Uh, I people came from 38 states. Who were the rest of the 12? <laughs> what was the driver's name? All right. And so finally, you've already uh, talked about the, the one-man Hellacious Renovations improv. Hellacious Renovations is, of course, your your podcast. Uh, right. And, With video? Oh, it's now a video podcast? Well, yeah. So technically, the first half hour is the podcast, but then the look around the haunted place is done uh, Skype, FaceTime, uh, Steamyard, whatever. Perfect. But uh, but that video portion is put on the My, Par- My Paranormal Network, um, where you can watch that half. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. Yeah. So how was it? Did it lend itself? See, I imagined it would. This is why it was my suggestion. Uh, yeah. Did it lend itself to the improv format? Very much so. And uh, it, 
had uh, even more scope for bigger laughs. So uh, Dave Schrader from uh, uh, Madness uh, uh, Radio over in Minneapolis came up on stage with me as a expert ghost hunter. He's done the Queen Mary many times and playing himself. He was hilarious. So so there's uh, much, much to enjoy. If you're looking for a paranormal laugh, okay. by all means, get the flash drive. And I just want to make it clear, uh, Dave Schrader, ghost expert. So when you say he's done the Queen Mary, you mean he's been on board that historic ship where he's done <laughs> yeah. shows, not having unlawful <laughs> carnal knowledge with Queen Mary from the ethereal plane. Uh, yes, that's sort of what I meant. Yes, yes. The Queen Mary ship, which unfortunately uh, is uh, maybe four months away from irreparable damage. And uh, the plan now is to tow it out and uh, scuttle it and sink it and have it to be a uh, scuba diving uh, destination uh, covered in coral, which is unfortunate because some of the wood paneling is from about 30 extinct species of trees. Uh, but it, apparently different management over the years had done little to uh, upkeep the historic boat. And uh, even though they were promised or they promised to do it, that was part of their management contract, they failed to do so. And now the thing is uh, just about beyond repair. You so, have been hitting us with so much information on every topic I throw at you. I don't honestly know which I prefer more, the sober you just inundating us with details or the drunken you that can't f manage to reach out to them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which is what each offers their own delights and their own challenges as your co-host. But you did provide a great segue. Uh, uh, because I thought of you, I am going to be appearing on Chris Mancini's "What Are You Watching?" the podcast. One of the podcasts he he talked about uh, when he visited us a couple weeks back. Um, but in preparing for that, uh, and one of the films that I'm going to be talking about on there, I came across a movie ad for another film uh, that starred the same lead, and I'll just give you this. It's a movie ad for a film starring George C. Scott, okay? Okay. And the aquatic theme, the scuba theme, the water and ocean, oceanic theme that you have been exploring through Queen Mary uh, really is related to this. So let me give you the ad copy and okay. see didn't I, play this so soon, but okay. I know uh, we haven't played in a long time. I I uh, but I mean I couldn't see this ad and not share this with you. George C. <laughs> Scott from 1973. Ooh. Unwittingly, comma, and oh my goodness, the word unwittingly does not get used in enough ad copy. <laughs> unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. That's the ad copy. And I'm what? and I'm so glad that uh, that they use the word unwittingly because otherwise I would think intentionally he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States and that would yeah. be uh, offensive 
That would right. be uh, very treason. violent. It would be treason. It also would be just ridiculously difficult to spend your time training a dolphin to do that. But to have unwittingly, <laughs> accidentally trained a dolphin to do that, well, that can happen. Well, okay, so then uh, it begs the question, how does the dolphin get to the White House? Because then that requires a lot of logistics. Well, if so that you, would you, be wittingly. Again, that would be intent. You so, might you might bring the president to the ocean. You might bring the. You, sometimes Muhammad has to come to the mountain. You can't just bring the mountain to Muhammad. Yeah, yeah, but you can't. You know, you, the schedule okay, of the president doesn't often include you, an ocean. Visit. I don't want you telling me why this movie might not oh, work. Oh, I see. I got to name the movie. You need to name uh, the movie George C. Scott, who is the he. That unwittingly trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say I only know two movies with the dolphins, and one is Free Willy, and I know there was no assassination, and he that was a killer whale, kind of think of it. So it's not even a dolphin. No, I think it was a yeah. dolphin. I think that was. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? The other dolphin was the uh, the military armored dolphin in Johnny Mnemonic with Keanu Reeves, but I'm trying to remember who did. Uh, did George C. Scott have a cameo with uh, Keanu Reeves Remember, and Johnny Mnemonic? Uh, so this uh, is 1973. Oh, 73. So that's way before William Gibson wrote any screenplay. So then, uh, and this is post-patent. So he's he's already rejected his golden Oscar for his role, which means he's doing uh, assassin uh, dolphin so, movies. I mean, he he which, did the hospital recently, so he's at the kind of still the peak of his powers, right? Uh, and, and speaking of people at the peak of their powers, I mean, uh, this is only six years removed from Buck Henry and Mike Nichols making a thing called The Graduate. And why do I bring that up? Because this is written by Buck Henry and directed <gasps> by Mike Nichols. What? And. I what? So, oh, this is called I, the Day of the Dolphin. Come on, it is not. Yes. How I have never seen this. I How don't have I know. I never heard of this. Uh, and and apparently, this movie is very earnest in its environmental themes, its themes of compassion and kindness. It's also supposed to be terrible. Uh, so <laughs> really. Really, Assassin Dolphin's terrible. Yeah, it is okay. not the Citizen Kane of <laughs> dolphin, assassinating dolphin movies. Mm. I spent a lot of time by the water uh, over in uh, in Montecito. Uh, this yeah, past thanks week. for those pics, by the way. While I'm suffering in a bingo hall basement in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, but I will tell you that one morning uh, we got in the car uh, with the stew and his uh, and his son William to uh, go to the Montecito Club, where we spent a lot of time. And uh, I looked at his uh, stereo there in the, in the Porsche, and yeah. uh, it wasn't playing, but displayed on the stereo was David Duchovny playing at the same dream. That was the name of the song. And I said, why is there a David Duchovny song all queued up on your uh, stereo? And he, he revealed, he said, I didn't know if you knew that David Duchovny allegedly recorded music. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, of course I, of course I do. Of course and, you do. Uh, He's um, toured the world. 
Um, <laughs> Stu didn't know this. Stu was reading an interview about it. Didn't know that uh, David Duchovny is a novelist, and indeed his, his most recent novel is supposed to be quite good. Um, oh. Yeah. His PhD is in English uh, anyway, but yeah. So, well, I said hit play. And he said, well, I got to warn you. And he hit me with some warnings. And uh, <laughs> and there Surprise. were many criticisms that came to mind to share. But they all kind of get wiped off the board when about 30 seconds, 45 seconds into the song, this sweet six-year-old boy in the back seat says, please turn this off. I hate this. <laughs> Uh, everybody's know, a critic. Uh, everybody's a critic. So anyway, very personal uh, show uh, in some ways. I'd been saving some of these uh, people, these things to talk about, uh, Dean. But we, we talk about celebrity deaths a lot on this show. Uh, right. And we, we always joke that uh, uh, we do so because it's so much more sad when a celebrity dies than when a normal person dies it's almost like losing two people um we <laughs> the hollywood flag at half mast a lot yeah we, we joke about that the truth is i think we enjoy uh two elements of this one we grieve these people that we did not know we mourn them because in some way they helped us know ourselves through mm-hmm. their cultural contributions and then the other thing that i know we love to celebrate is all that we did not know maybe about these people that right. no, no matter how famous someone is the accolades they receive how identified they might be with a great success uh there is still so much more that is often more interesting about them than that which they are predominantly identified for right um, and then there are some people that we come into contact with that uh, never achieve that level of, of household name, um, but that in some way they they touched and moved and influenced us. And uh, darn if it hasn't been a, a, a rough couple years for that, of course. Uh, and so I want to remember an actor named Howard Fong. You uh, met him at least once at an event. This uh, Howard was an actor and a writer and an activist. I met in the Bay Area when uh, I was doing my first film, Till Death Do Us Part, shooting it back in 94. He auditioned and uh, got cast in that film. And I stayed friends with him when he moved to Monterey Park to uh, to continue to pursue at a uh, age... Uh, that was not young, uh, continue to pursue his dream of being an actor, his creative dreams, because indeed there are no expiration dates for, uh, for your dreams of expressing yourself creatively. Right. He, he died, it turned out, uh, they're saying in the first week of June, but he was actually, his body was found, I think, June 2nd, and apparently he'd been dead for several days. Oh. Um, but I didn't find out about it until August. And it just, it's its awful. Like, how does that not show up in my Facebook feed? Right? right. Any ad that's likely to make me angry shows up in my Facebook feed, but not information about my friends no longer being alive. He was uh, irrepressible. He was beloved. He had been in many films and television shows and commercials. Joy Luck Club, which I think he did in San Francisco. My film, Till Death to His Part, is listed second. Uh, oh. did, did a fun indie film, Fresno Smooth. Did some big shows like Party of Five. 
uh, Unsolved Mysteries, even starred in a legendary uh, music video for the band Cake. Uh, Anybody who met Howard Fong just found themselves enchanted by Howard Fong. He was delightful. His commercial agents, he was represented commercially uh, by Coast to Coast talent. Right. And uh, they tell the story about um, one of the things that he would always do that would delight them no end is he would always call or email his agents to confirm an audition <laughs> and he would do so by beginning, I, Howard Fong, hereby confirm my audition for, and then he would give the information. <laughs> uh, that's fun. Yeah, the, the formality of it is fun. Yeah. Um, he also became famous, infamous, uh, infamous, for his naps. This naps. guy could sleep anywhere at any time. Wow. I mean, this could be, this might be a sad story, but it also is kind of uh, thrilling to me that when he first had come to LA and he bought, he got an office in Monterey Park, but he didn't have a place uh, where I, he lived. And so oh. he had an office and he had a gym membership. So that takes care of your showering and your working out and everything. And he could sleep on the floor of his office. But what he would often do is he would take the, the gold line on in to Union Station. And this is back when people could do this, when anybody could go into Union Station and just sit down in those high back plush leather chairs and sit for a spell. Now you have to prove that you have an Amtrak ticket. Yes, Um, because people started doing that. But he, he would come in like on the last train, the last Gold Line train. He would uh, pull up one of those chairs, sleep in that chair for a few hours. And as soon as Philippe, the original, the old French dip place in Chinatown, yep. would open, he'd march on over there to get his first light of dawn, nine cent cup of coffee. Because right. co- coffee was still nine cents over there. And that would be how his, his nights would end and his mornings would begin every day. And then he would be back on it, pounding the pavement. My favorite uh, personal falling asleep story for Howard Fong was um, we were going to meet. And we were going to meet at a particular restaurant in Larchmont um, and uh, near when it opened, early in the evening. Like five sure. o'clock, I think it opened, and we were going to just meet in the bar, and we were going to we were going to chat. And uh, he never shows up, oh, and no. uh, so that's the sad thing. And I called to see where he was, and never never got. It. And this before is before we're all connected with cell phones and text messaging and everything right. like that. This is late nineties. He's fairly recently relocated to Los Angeles. Um. But I will tell you this, that it kind of worked out fine for me. I ended up spending my entire evening and night there. And, uh, and as they were getting ready to close, I was still there. Um, <laughs> because I was going to be leaving with, uh, with, a, with a bartender. So it, oh. had been, it had been a good night for me. <laughs> Let's just say this. Yes. And uh, as we're getting ready to go... Who rushes in breathlessly but Howard Fong? I go, Howard, <laughs> we, were, we were supposed to meet here seven hours ago. What are you doing? Look, I don't know what I'm doing here, but what are you doing here now? Uh, and he said, oh, I got here early. 
I said, well, nothing about that explains why you're coming in seven hours late. Well, I parked and I decided just to take a nap. Oh, no. So he was parked literally right out in front, napping for almost eight napping. hours. Yeah. Wow. So that's called a full night's sleep. Yeah. That's and, not napping. And that was Howard. That was Howard Funk. Uh, yeah. he, uh, he also was a playwright and not just a, a fun character actor, but he was a talented playwright. He, um, he wrote uh, a play called Ute Ho, which debuted at the David Henry Wang Playhouse uh, with such uh, actors as Ping Wu and Donald Watson. And uh, it was directed by the late, great Elizabeth Sung. He was an active member of the AAPI community and a member of the famed Media Action Network for Asian Americans. Uh, one thing, uh, he always was tireless in his effort to connect and support communities of color, particularly the uh, Asian American community, uh, and to promote better representation in the media. Um, and one really, I thought, great tribute to him was uh, following his death, the Asian American Film Lab staff uh, dedicated their annual 72-hour shootout filmmaking competition to my friend Howard Fong. Uh, that's a nice story. Uh, this Another one that I heard about, uh, a friend of mine, Pamela Lillard, not just a friend, but the first scene partner I ever had in an acting class. Wow. Uh, died unexpectedly on May 13th. And uh, she was mostly a m musician, had a gorgeous and versatile voice. Uh, she left a young son that she had adopted in 2014 behind. Um, she was a longtime resident and beloved in Topanga Canyon. Uh, just such a light, such a spirit. I don't know how she died, uh, but I do know uh, that her last journal entry ended with the words, God is love. Oh. Finally, how about our friend Skylar Alfevgren, who who began her professional writing career as a teenager uh, with a column about 40 in exploration for a nationally distributed magazine and uh, became a, a regular writer for uh, LA Weekly, among many other publications. You're listening to Odyssey. Consultant on Fox Network's paranormal news program, Strange Universe. Um, you knew her for quite a long time. She uh, wrote a, a wonderful review of our film, The Truth Is Out There. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she was a features writer, a film critic, a music journalist, a television personality. Uh, by her own description, a mechanical tinkerer, animal wrangler, radio guest, organizer, lecturer, and Chronicle of the Curious. Uh, <laughs> and she just died quite suddenly, um, I guess this past week. And nobody oh. knows exactly at this point what the causes were. But she was very oh. young. She's much younger than us. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I worry sometimes about uh, our Fordian journalistic friends uh yes we have another one mark bennett right yes um 
I remember something that uh, Marilyn Schlitz at the Institute of Noetic Sciences was telling us about the danger, the trap that often uh, new age thinkers, let's call them, sometimes fall into, where they uh, fall so in love uh, with alternative research, with the healing potentials of our own mind and our own spirit, with holistic approaches, that they reject uh, more conventional science and medicine. And she, she said something about that that really stuck with me back then. And as I've grown older, and as I uh, certainly have, uh, you know, fallen in love with Lily, and I'm in a relationship with her, uh, so now there's other people that I worry about, not just me. I really right. appreciate the importance of keeping everything on the table where your own right. health is concerned. Maintain all possibilities as available to you, and as possibilities. You need to build your own team that works for you, and you need an approach that is not seeking to confirm your own biases, but that is covering all the bases. Interesting. Right. Yeah, what's that called? Self-affirming bias? What's that called? Well, especially where our magical thinking is concerned. We are a society that is deadly prone, literally, to magical thinking now. Right. And I'm not taking horse to wormer. Um, well, and even that, right? Like, there's the conversation. It's a horse to wormer, or it's a, a COVID uh, medication. Um, <laughs> it is, in fact, neither of those things. It is an anti-parasitic. It is used in great quantity on horses to deworm them. That is true. And yes, at those levels, that would be dangerous to a human. Um, But I have experience with ivermectin, which is what you're talking about, where uh, dogs are concerned. And, you know, my my mother was involved in the in the raising and the breeding and the grooming of of dogs. And and, uh, you know, she really learned uh, just how dangerous that was for the nervous system on smaller animals. It would often often lead to seizures. She oh. she made it clear she would never let uh, a dog that she was responsible for be put on that medication. Um, but it is an anti-parasitic. Right. And uh, not an antiviral. And so, again, the magical thinking of using something uh, for which it's not designed, can that work sometimes? Yes, of course, that has happened. But once you're starting to point out examples where that's happened, you sound to me like someone who's trying to confirm your own bias. Right. And, and uh, the downside of being wrong is uh, losing your own health, losing your own life. Uh, and um, so I would encourage everybody to be better about it. Everything needs to be on the table. Reject nothing. After all, the cause of all dis-ease, no matter how much we feel we need to blame, bats in a cave, Chinese scientists in a laboratory, no matter how much we think we need to blame, the truth is the cause of all dis-ease is life. That's the cause of it. No one gets out alive. 
Right. Life is going to kill every single one of us. What has always struck me is when people would say about people who died in, let's say, accepted heroic circumstances, someone in the military, public service officer, a fireman, or a police officer in the line of duty, they died for what they believed in. The truth is, we all die for what we believe in. You want to know how someone died? That'll tell you some of what they believed in. I believed I needed to smoke these cigarettes every day in order to maintain my calm and my productivity. That was a belief that I had, and it probably was linked to how I died, right? (laughs) Right. Um, And so you you learn about someone through how they die. That's absolutely true. And uh, I think we are learning a lot about people's magical thinking and their need to confirm their own biases. And I would just like to be a voice of keep everything on the table. You know, I mentioned this when I saw the the Val Kilmer documentary. Um, And, uh, you know, he took a lot of, of flack publicly when even after undergoing cancer treatment, he said, I was cured of the suggestion of cancer. And uh, people said, see, this is why uh, Christian science is so dangerous. This is why slavish devotion to anything, not keeping all options on the table, is always going to lead us into a trap. Um, And he it should be pointed out, got medical treatment. And he got medical treatment because he did not want to uh, frighten his family. And uh, he needed his family around them, and he needed them not to be in fear. So he was certainly going to undergo, uh, you know, medical treatment. But man, people piled on when he he referred to it as a suggestion of cancer. And I've got to tell you, I find it so healthy, that saying. Um, the suggestion the, of cancer. Suggestion of cancer, this, rather than saying, I have cancer. Right. Because the truth is, you don't have it, nor does it have you. Right. Um, I mentioned this to you before, that I once got to know uh, the uh, college roommate of J.D. Salinger, and this guy himself was a fascinating man, and uh, he stayed up late one night when Dan Butler and I were out filming early pieces of uh, Carl Rove, I Love You. We were staying with him. He was the uh, second husband of of Dan's mother, and Ah. he stayed up waiting for us, and I had had a wonderful talk with him earlier in the evening. But he stayed up. You know, we're, we're grown men, but it was really sweet. Like, he wanted to make sure that we got home safe and that we had a good time. And he, he looked at me and he said, uh, did you have fun? And I said, yeah, I really did. And he said, good. Fun is the only thing you actually can have. Right. Everything else is a suggestion of something. Nah. <laughs> but we wow. love to identify with things. Uh, because right. we we are at a loss often to know who we are, who and what we are and what we're made of. So we say things like, I am sad, I am angry, as opposed to, no, I have the suggestion of anger or sadness, right. or I have the feeling of anger and sadness, or even I feel this. Um, right. Because all emotions are theoretically only 20 breaths long. If you are continuing to breathe and process the emotion through your breath, it often transforms within inside of 20 breaths. 
or in so, med- or in meditation, right? They're all passing meditate. clouds. They're all thought forms right. on a passing cloud. So uh, again, I, I, you know, our need to blame I think gets us into trouble. Our mm-hmm. our need, need to identify our, our to- need to identify gets us in trouble, and I, our need for magical thinking uh, gets us in in trouble. Uh, how do we keep all potentialities alive? Seems to be the real challenge of life in this part of the 21st century. And therein you take an improv class. You keep all potentialities alive. The scene is about everything and nothing at the same time. That's a really good point. I mean, that that does get back to the truth is out there and how we kind of cut this together without it being a goal in advance, but it truly was increasingly, man, these skills that you learn through improv training might just be the skills that are required to navigate modern life. Right. Uh, And and, and I think, you know, the recent stories uh, about... Afghanistan and the the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan and the rescue missions and everything might even speak to this. Um, Wow. Because I thought it was fascinating how they are going on at the same time that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is being given a hero's welcome in Vietnam, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is evoking Vietnam and the last war that we lost Right, and, and the helicopter out of Saigon. That's the and we're, similar. aren't we a culture that also, just like we like to assign blame, we like to assign winners and losers. This person won, this person lost. They're winners, they're losers. Right. And yet, uh, I was going to say outside of sports, where where do you really have it? But even in sports, the it's not about winning and losing the game necessarily. I mean, uh, there's a reason, like in basketball, which I love, there's these seven-game series. And sometimes you intentionally lose games in order to win series. Right. Because you lull the other team into playing in a certain way that is going to exhaust them. Ah. And then you're able to emerge victorious. Um, Right. Yes, we lose the war in Vietnam, apparently. And North Vietnam takes takes control, right? right. Uh, and it's, it's messy. It's ugly. It's horrifying. For many decades now, Vietnam has been one of our friendliest, most devoted allies. I know, right? So, uh, yeah. So we, trade. so we lost? I mean, you read Tucker's book about return to Eden and going back and finding the very place where he was uh, at least temporarily killed in battle, right? Right. And uh, it's this paradise again there. And, um, I mean, I encourage everyone to read his book, Return to Eden. Um, But it it really puts the perspective in of, of kind of that Buddhist attitude of, is it good? Is it bad? Who can say? Who can say? Yeah, I know, right? It's a moral judgment that you apply. Again, identifying is it good, is it bad? But and it, also how it affects you at the moment. If you have to identify as a winner or a loser, you do kill off possibilities. Right. And uh-huh. put yourself with unnecessary baggage. I mean, to go around saying I'm a loser, then reframes how you approach everything uh, that you're... 
you are already defeated before you started. Yeah. And and so there was never, I think, really this honest appraisal of Vietnam decades later of, okay, what, are, what were the mistakes? What would we not want to repeat? But what do we yeah. like about where we are now? And is there a way to get here now? I don't know what the future of Afghanistan holds. I do know that... Uh, uh, for everybody who is just shocked and horrified that the Taliban has taken over again, I feel like the worst thing imaginable would be to find yourself in charge of Afghanistan. <laughs> I know. There you got food shortages. I mean, there's a management issue that I don't think any religious ideology or whatever ideology can overcome. It's going to require management skills. And Who's got those? And so seeds have been planted. It is a different Afghanistan 20 years later. It's a different populace. It's a different world than it was 20 years ago. So who knows what will happen and what will uh, transform. And I'm not shrugging my shoulders at the fear and the pain and the suffering of people. Uh, We have to look at those things honestly. Um, But I actually think our unwillingness to look at things honestly is also why we have to get to crack determinations of winning, losing, blame, uh, what went right, what went wrong. And uh, we don't take a more philosophical, uh, eyes wide open approach to these. I know. This is why I'm now suddenly very, very much approving of Google's alphabet from running for running the country. It uh, it learned how to play chess without any human coding. It just watched through a video camera at uh, another uh, two people playing chess and within four hours learned how to play chess, uh, played itself a million times, and then went up against Watson and won 72 games and drew 28 and uh, never lost one. As you you know, I never have been a fan of uh, traditional blood sports, hunting, (laughs) right? Uh, Right. I find hunting to be so refreshingly empathetic and human compared to the blood sports that we culturally engage in. (laughs) Oh, interesting. On every topic, because at least in hunting, you do honor the vanquished. (laughs) Yes, you do, with a delicious meal. Um, And you try to make use of it as much as you can. For sure. Celebrity deaths. A lot of musical notables, but we will start with an actor who I read was the most Emmy-honored actor, male actor, in history, and that was Ed Asner. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, He's the most Emmy-nominated or Emmy-honored? Emmy-honored. I don't know what that would mean, whether that would be award-winning or... Uh, but you think of all the great guest spots that he did, um, and it, it does make a, a certain amount of sense. He, of course, rose to fame playing cranky newsman Lou Grant on the Mary Tyler Moore show from 1970 to 77. And let's not forget a very successful spinoff that was an hour-long drama. Drama, I know, of the same character. He won five Emmy Awards for playing the character Lou Grant across those two series. He also won two other Emmys uh, for the miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man, and Roots. Oh, yeah. He was in Roots. Yes. Ordinarily, right, that cranky gruffness was in service or support 
to an underlying kind-heartedness that marked most of his characters, right? Um, Yeah. And I think that's why he had such great appeal to uh, younger generations uh, and, and of course, made him the perfect uh, fit for voicing Carl Fredrickson in Pixar's Up, right? Right. Yeah. A total, it almost looked like a, a caricature of him. Um, he also, uh, let us not forget, uh, played Santa in uh, the Will Ferrell smash hit Elf. Oh, yeah. That guy, he showed up everywhere. Oh, my goodness. Didn't he? Uh, you know, some of his uh, movie work, they call me Mr. Tibbs back in 1970. How about him turning up in JFK in 1991? Oh. Um, right. He had recurring roles in the series Mad About You, ER, and Dead to Me. Uh, provided voices on many, many shows. And, uh, of course, guest appearances throughout the decades on shows as diverse as Gunsmoke, The Mod Squad, Roseanne, The Current Cobra Kai, and, of course, one of the most beloved episodes of The X-Files. Yes, with him and Lily Tomlin. Yes, a Christmas-themed episode. And And speaking of Christmas-themed, I saw him play Scrooge at a Community Center production on Wilshire uh, back in the 90s. And who better to play Scrooge than Lou Grant Ed Asner? Holy smokes, he tore it up. That was a great production that year. Well, I like that we've now talked about three different kind of Christmas-themed things that he's involved with. And that gruffness, uh, you know, that reveals ultimately a kind-heartedness is so perfect because I think that's how a lot of us feel about Christmas. We, you know, again, uh, unless we're, we need the magical thinking of it, there's a lot of us that go, wow, this just starts too soon. (laughs) It's exhausting, right? We're we're grudging, we're gruff, uh, but then our kindheartedness ultimately shines through. Um, Unless we're Canadian. Okay. Carla Burns is someone I've been wanting to talk about for a a few months. She died on June 4th at a hospital in Wichita, Kansas at the age of 66. She was the first uh, black person to ever win England's prestigious Lawrence Olivier Award for her performance in Showboat. She played Queenie, which she debuted in 1982 with the Houston Grand Opera. And uh, then after premiering in Houston, it traveled to venues including Broadway's Gershwin Theater and the London Palladium. She won her groundbreaking 1991 Olivier Award as well as a Drama Desk Award for her performance. Wow. She was also known for her performance in the one-woman show High Hat Hattie, portraying Hattie McDaniel, the Gone with the Wind star, who was the first black actor to win an Oscar. So here's yeah. a, a groundbreaking black cool. performer playing a groundbreaking black performer. Fantastic. Uh, her other notable stage productions included the Comedy of Errors, Measure for Measure for New York Shakespeare in the Park, Addie in the Opera Regina, and Lily in Porgy and Bess for New York's Metropolitan Opera. Wow. So she died uh, at the age of 66. Charlie Watts. Uh, oh, I know. Dean, what a surprise. Uh, that any of those guys could die, really, is kind of <laughs> funny. Legendary drummer for the Rolling Stones, uh, considered one of rock's greatest drummers, 
Uh, he, of course, died August 24th at the age of 80, quite peacefully at a London hospital. That's a shock. Just a rock and roll drummer dying not of uh, what spontaneous Some... combustion, but <laughs> dying peacefully. Uh, right. He grew up in London, first fell in love with jazz music, especially swing and bebop. I cannot tell you how many rock and roll drummers I admire who first fall in love with jazz. It uh, makes a lot of sense. He, uh, right up your alley, I mean, I don't know if you were aware of these things, uh, but a drummer who attends art school and becomes a graphic designer. Did not know that even a little. Really? Okay. Joined the band Blues Incorporated in 1962, uh, where he met Brian Jones, uh, uh -huh. who would sometimes play at Blues Incorporated gigs. They became friends with uh, notable fans of the blues, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and Watts joined their new gro group, the Rolling Stones, in 1963. Wow. He was uh, never... Too flashy and uh, surprising for someone who loved jazz. He always issued drum solos. He really just believed that his job was to drive their legendary hit songs with innovative yet tight rhythms. That's true. Uh, they are tight. Yeah. Outside the Stones, Watts did play in various jazz bands and led his own Charlie Watts Orchestra in the 1980s playing big band jazz. He uh -huh. did not have the wild party reputation of his bandmates, uh, though he did have to kick both alcohol and drug addictions uh, back in the 1980s. So he wasn't a stranger to partying. I could no. I, I guess we could. If I recall the story correctly, I think he started heroin just to see why the rest of the band was taking heroin. Long after they had already kicked it, he said, "Oh, I should try this." In his 40s, which is remarkable. If I knew that I had another lifetime as me, I <laughs> might give myself over to experimenting <laughs> with, with to, to, to experimenting with drugs. And then have to go to see rehab to No, 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 no. If I knew I had another life as me, I would uh, many decades ago have dedicated all of this one to experimentation. <laughs> but I don't think Phil Lairness is coming back. Uh, this, this is the only Phil Lairness that the people are getting. So I feel I have a, I feel I have a, I have a responsibility. You, know to, you have to shepherd that uh, American landmark. <laughs> I understood that when I accepted the mantle of being Phil Lairness. There's a responsibility. <laughs> Phil Lairness is With not just great responsibility. You're right. Not just one person. Phil Lairness is you. He's our listeners, he's Lily, he's Fuzz Aldrin, he's me, he's all of us working together to make the best, most palatable Phil Lairness we possibly can. <laughs> the um, most palatable. That's, uh, uh. I, here's a quote from Charlie Watts, and then I want to talk about another drummer. He said, I don't like drum solos, he once said. I admire some people that do them, but generally I prefer drummers playing with the band. The challenge with rock and roll is the regularity of it. My thing is to make it a dance sound. It should swing and bounce. Uh, Look at that. That's so, true. So let's talk about the other end of the spectrum. Let's talk about someone most famous for a drum solo. It was Ron Bushy, the drummer for Iron Butterfly. Oh, uh, he died? He died August 29th uh, at the UCLA Santa Monica Hospital uh, of Esophageal Cancer at the age of 79. 
Uh, oh, wow. He joins oh. Iron Butterfly in 1966, replacing a previous drummer, but joining the band before they had recorded an album. So that he, I have right here. So he becomes the only band member to play on all six of their albums, even though he wasn't part of their original lineup. Ah. Uh, so their iconic song, Inagata Davida, owed both its name and its length to Ron Bushy. His drum solo takes up much of its 17-minute runtime. Sure does. And the title came about because he misheard singer Doug Ingalls' slurred words when singing in the Garden of Eden. Right. And you listen to it now, you could clearly hear him sing in the Garden of Eden. The misunderstanding stuck. The song went on to become one of the formative influences on hard rock and heavy metal. He remained yep. with Iron Butterfly through a series of band breakups and reformations. He continued to drum for them off and on for the rest of his life. He also played in the bands The Voxman, Magic, and Gold. So here is what he said about recording Inagata Davida. After our tour, we went straight into Ultrasonic Studios in Hempstead. So this would be for their first ever recording session. Right, in England. Don Cassell was the engineer. We set up our equipment, and Don says, Guys, why don't you just start playing and let me get some mic levels? We decided, let's do Vita, which is what they called it. Right. We played the entire song without stopping. To make a long story short, when we finished, he said, guys, come into the control room. We listened to it, and we were blown away. And that one rehearsal was the song released on the album. No way. Not even the second take. It's just the mic check. Finally, one half of rock and roll's pioneering group, the Everly Brothers, uh, died at 84. Don Everly, the elder brother, I believe. The Everly Brothers had big hits, like All I Have to Do is Dream, Wake Up Little Susie, Bye Bye Love, Kathy's Clown. They were a genuine sensation in the late 50s and early 60s as rock and roll was becoming the dominant cultural phenomenon. Right. Uh, his country-influenced vocals sung alongside his younger brother, Phil, stretched the possibilities of harmonies in those early rock and roll days. Uh, Don had learned to sing and play the guitar at a very young age and, in fact, made his radio debut at the age of eight. Wow. The pair signed their first record deal in 1957, uh, and the hits started uh, coming almost immediately thereafter. They split up in 1973. Don launched a solo career, uh, but a decade later, the Everly Brothers reunited and recorded several albums together, including EB84. Look at that. The Everly Brothers. Promotional consideration paid for by Empire State Gas. From farm to pump, we've got great gas. Belated spoiler alert. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. Wonder. 